0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Okay, now we are to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're taking another step in our set of sermons through the Sermon on the Mount called Valleys Fill First. And at first, we're looking at the Beatitudes. This is what we're doing this fall. We're just taking a slow stroll through the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, in a lot of ways, cut right to the core of what life with God looks like. They're showing us what normal Christianity is, what life inside of God's kingdom with Jesus is like. And it highlights the paradoxical nature of it. Life with Jesus is upside down in so many ways. So we looked at uh, the first one last week in verse three, blessed, now that that word blessed is a unique word. It means to to be happy in Jesus. It it means the place where human beings are going to flourish, that that is this word blessed, this particular word in this particular passage. Happy, flourishing are, are these people, blessed, Are the poor in spirit? Blessed are those, happy are those, flourishing are those who are living with a deep awareness of their moral bankruptcy before God, with a deep awareness of their sinfulness before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's upside down. I mean, who talks like that? You're not gonna find anyone else in our culture looking at you and saying, hey, here's where the happy life is. It's when you're poor in spirit. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to if you want to give it in a in a say it in a different way what Jesus is after in that first beatitude, he, he's trying to convince us that the lower we go, the happier in Jesus we'll become. The lower you go, the, the low, not the higher you go, but the lower you go, the happier in Jesus you'll become. It's the upside down nature of life with God. And then you get to verse four. It's another one of those paradoxical statements. Blessed are, you, are, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, who again, who talks like that? I mean, how does that even, how does that even work? How are you happy? H- how are happier are those who are mourning? I mean, essentially Jesus is saying happy are the sad. How does that work? It's such a paradoxical, upside down way of seeing the world. But this is what Jesus is saying here. This is what he's trying to convince us of. Happy are the sad. Now, before we go any further, I feel a need in this particular sermon, just to preface by everything else I'm gonna say with this. There are two postures from which you can preach. One posture you might think of as a tour guide. A tour guide has seen the sights and then they're relaying to you what they've seen, ground that they've covered, places that they've been. That, that's one way that you can preach. The other way you can preach is from the posture of a fellow traveler. And a fellow traveler is not saying, hey, this is where I've been. Come and get over here with me. It's not saying that. As a fellow traveler, you're saying, God, would you please take me there too? God, I need to go into this place. I I need more of this. Would you collectively take us together toward this? And that is the way that I'm preaching this morning. It is as a fellow traveler. I don't know that there's any sermon that I've ever preached where I feel more inadequate and unqualified to preach it. When I look over my life, I have just mourned so little, so little. And I need God to take me deeper into this. Just like I think we as a church need God to take us deeper into this. So I'm to look at this from a couple of angles. Here's the first one. What is Jesus commending in this second beatitude? What is he commending? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn? One of the things we have to figure out first is... Is mourning what? We need to ask that question. What, what are we to mourn? What is he saying we should be mourning in this passage? And anytime you're asking questions about a passage, the first thing you need to look at is the context of the passage. And the context helps here. Beatitude number one is connected to beatitude number two. So beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are living with a deep awareness of their own moral bankruptcy before God, their own own depravity, their own sinfulness. Blessed are those who who know and see and are aware that sin is soaked into every cell of their heart. That's beatitude number one. And then beatitude number two flows out of that. Um, Beatitude number two, those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn. It's the emotive response that flows from the deep awareness of our own moral bankruptcy. It's, the, it's when, we, when we feel the deep moral bankruptcy that, that is our soul. It's the emotive response that just gushes out of that feeling, gushes out of that awareness. And it's interesting, that word mourning, there's nine words that Jesus had at his disposal that he could have used that, that vary in intensity to describe mourning. So so there's nine different words, but Jesus chose the word that conveys the deepest amount of intensity. So Jesus is not just saying, um, I'm after a general sadness about your bankruptcy, about your sin. It's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, what what I'm commending here is a soul-shaking anguish over your moral bankruptcy, over your depravity, over your sinfulness. Jesus is saying here, happy, happy, are the brokenhearted over sin. Happy. I mean, isn't that a paradoxical thing? Happy, but blessed are the brokenhearted over sin. Now, before we can go any further, we have to do a little work on that word sin, that that word sin, because it's such a popular word that people just love to talk about today. Feel the sarcasm. It's not that. So let's do a little bit of work on that. So when you see that word sin, it's important that you know that sin is done by both deed and desires. It's both an issue of deeds and desires. Now, let's start with deeds. This is how we most often think about sin because it's the easiest to see. It's the external action of sin. It's the, the outward expression of sin. It's, it's what we're doing to break the commands of God. So, so that's deeds. So it's, it's breaking those commands. It's, it's lying. It's committing adultery. It's murdering. It's all of those sort of deeds of the hands that, that you can see. That, that's deeds. But sin is bigger than deeds. It goes much deeper than our deeds. It goes all the way down into our heart and our heart's desires. Maybe you could think of it this way. Under all of our wrong deeds, there exist wrong desires. So think of it in terms of fruit and root. The fruit of sin are the deeds, the things you can see us, you know, people doing. But, but deep down below the fruit are the roots of sin and the roots of sin are our desires. That's what's down below it. Um, Luther made just such a good in, like, observation and had such good insight in the Ten, uh, into the Ten Commandments. And he's commenting and he just recognized the significance of the order of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no gods before me. In other words, you're to love me above every other thing. You're to value me. You're to desire me, want me above everything else. And when you don't do that, it's idolatry. It's you sticking something else in my place. So commandment number one is God saying, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength above everything else. And Martin Luther makes the point. There's a reason that that commandment number one is in its place. And here's the reason. It's because to break commandments two through 10, two through 10 have much more of an outward nature to them. They're more of the deeds of the hands that you can see. To to break commandments two through 10, you have to first break commandment number one. So, So all of those deeds that we do, those are only possible because our desires have gone awire inside of us. That they've gone awry inside of us. That they've become deformed and distorted. We're, we're loving and desiring wrong things. So desire is root and deed is fruit. So even Jesus is talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Later on in chapter 5, he says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not uh, commit adultery. There's the deed, right? But he's, he's not just concerned with the deed. He's also concerned with the desire because sin is in both deed and desire. He goes on in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, is that not a sobering thing to know? God is not just looking at our external actions, our deeds. He is looking all the way into the depths of our hearts down into the desires, what we want what we love, what we're really after, the motives. Sin is in both deeds and desires. And secondly, sin's done by both commission and omission. Commission are things that you do, that God says, no, don't do them. That's commission, things that you're actively breaking the law of God. Omission are those things that you do not do, that God says, yes, would you you please do those things? That's omission. So so it's zealously loving God, loving neighbor as yourself. When we don't do those things, we are sinning by omission. Now, isn't that a sobering thing to consider? I mean, just take a moment to think about all that you have done in your life and all that you have left undone in your life. Who in here could even count the sins? And Jesus is saying, happy are those who are brokenhearted over sin. Happy are those who grieve that with a soul-shaking anguish. Now, look at those last four words brokenhearted over sin. But broken hearted over sin. Happy are the brokenhearted over sin. Let me insert two different words into that to give some clarity on how we should apply uh, this beatitude happy are those who are brokenhearted over sin. It's not just over sin generally, it's happy are those who are brokenhearted over my sin. That the place where we should start in the application of the second beatitude is in a personal application. It, it's personally, it's, it's meant to be personally applied to the sin in our own life that we can see in our own soul. So, so where this beatitude first takes us It's allowing Jesus to to open up our souls and and to get a good hard look at the dirty depths of sin in our soul, in our heart. But both in deed and desire, both things that we have done and things that we have left undone, it's, it's allowing Jesus to take us all the way into that and then allowing Jesus to help us feel the sinfulness of our sin, the horror of it, the ugliness of it, and then to grieve it. That is where Jesus is taking us in this beatitude. Now, it's important to think about tears in the Bible. Not all tears are equal in the scriptures. And Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 7. Um, I, I love how Thomas Watson said it. He was an old Puritan pastor. He said, the heart is very deceitful. It can betray as well by a tear as by a kiss. By both of those, not not all tears are equal in the Bible. Paul knows this. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7 that grief comes in two forms. There is worldly grief and there is godly grief. And we need to have eyes that can discern the difference between those two because those two types of grief two types of tears are going to take us to two massively different places. Paul says, here's where worldly grief is going to take you. It's going to take you to your ruin, to your death, to, to, to hell. That's where it's going to take you. But on the other hand, godly grief is going to take you to repentance. It's going to take you to life. It's going to take you to your rescue, not to your ruin. So we need to have eyes that can see the difference between these two. And it's not easy to see the difference between them because they share something in common. Worldly grief and godly grief both share grief, right? They both share tears in common. There is a deep anguish. But the question is not do they both share tears or do they both share grief or sorrow? The question is what are those tears grounded in? What is underneath those tears? And for worldly grief, worldly grief is grounded in love of self. The grieving over sin is primarily a horizontal grieving over the consequences horizontally of sin. So, and sin will cost us things, won't it? It it can cost us our job, it can cost us our reputation, it can cost us money, it can cost us family. Um, When we get caught in our sin, it even costs us the sin itself. And worldly grief can look at all of those things and shed real tears over the loss of those things. Most often, worldly grief manifests itself in self-pity, which is a form of self-love. It's this woe is me. That this is worldly grief, grounded in self-love. On the other hand, godly grief is grounded in a love of God. This is a grief that, that, yeah, it recognizes there are horizontal consequences of sin. It knows that. It knows there's a horizontal cost. But it only sees those horizontal costs secondarily. Primarily, first, godly grief mourns the wound our sin has inflicted upon the heart of God. Godly grief mourns and grieves because we have grieved the heart of God. It's David in Psalm 51. It's against you and you only, God, that I've sinned. That is is godly grief. And this is the sort of personal grieving over sin that Jesus invites us into. And and notice that 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 mourning in this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, that's in the present tense. And here's what the present tense means, that that is an ongoing action. It's not a one-time moment in the life of a Christian. It is the life of a Christian. And Martin Luther, it's interesting, when he nailed his 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg that started the Protestant Reformation, the, the first of his theses, the first of his statements went like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent. That was his first sermon in Matthew 5, or Matthew 4, repent. Martin Luther went on to say, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, to be one of mourning, to be one of sorrow over our sin. This is normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian experience. This is what life with God looks like for the sons and daughters of God. Maybe you can think of the Christian life like this. The nearer you get to Jesus, the quicker you'll both recognize and weep over your sin. The nearer you get to Jesus, the quicker you'll recognize and weep over your sin. And you see this throughout the Bible, right? You see it in David in Psalm 51. That's a good example of how there's this deep contrition and mourning over his sin. You see it in Peter. He denies Jesus three times. And then when the rooster crows and he becomes aware of his sin, it says he went out and he wept bitterly. You see it in Paul. Paul is the greatest church planter in the history of the church. That's Paul. I mean, if there's anyone who kind of has his his, his stuff together, it's Paul. But yet in 1 Timothy, when Paul looks at his own life, he sees himself like this. I am the worst of sinners. That's what I am. And, And here's why he can say that because he knows his heart better than he knows anyone else's heart. And he knows what's inside of him. In Romans 7, he laments, he is weeping over. He is, he is in anguish over what he sees inside of him when he says, man, the things that I wanna do, I don't do. And the things I don't wanna do, it's, it's those very things that I'm doing. I mean, he calls himself this wretched man. I mean, he's just weeping over. He is, he's in anguish over the sin that is in him, which I think just leads us to this question. When is the last time you have grieved over your sin? When is the last time you have mourned over what you see in you? Not just in the deeds that you do, but over your desires. When is the last time there has been that soul-shaking grief over that? And let me just take a quick detour and and address why why do we so seldom mourn our sin? Like, why is this for so many of us not our experience in the Christian life? Why is that? Let me give you two reasons. First, we need to be aware of our tendency towards self-justification, towards self-justification. Part of how the flesh works in me this is, this is what it does to me. It's what it does to you. And the flesh is that old part of us that's at war with God that doesn't trust God. And part of how the flesh works is it offers continual, continual excuses for our sin. We're doing this because of them. We're acting like this and, and wanting this because of that person and these things. It's just continually offering excuses and reasons why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Um, do y'all remember the show, How to Catch a Predator? Is that not terrifying? It's like the worst show ever and I watched it all the time and it was just amazing. (laughs) It was amazing what would happen in every episode, in every one of these scenes. So um, if you remember the storyline, basically you have these uh, agents doing a sting and these uh, older men typically would find themselves at a house with the intent of abusing underage children. That's the scenario and they would get to the house, and then Colin Hansen would walk out into the kitchen and confront them. And it's amazing what happened in every single moment. I mean, it's not like they were thinking about this. It's just what instantly came up and out of them. As soon as they were confronted in their sin, the excuses started to flow out of them. The the justification, the reasons for their their sin started to to jump out. So uh, why are you in the neighborhood? That would be a question he would ask. I I thought the house was for sale. I don't know. I'm randomly here. I thought they were like 30 years old. I mean, just one excuse after another would pour out of them. Now, before we point a finger at them, can we all just recognize this morning that that same voice exists in us? And right now it is convincing many of us to cohabitate with our darling sins. Like this morning, that same voice is is in us giving justifications for, reasons for, excuses for that sin that is present in our soul. The flesh also makes these constant arguments that we're we're really better than we are. That you're not that bad. You're better than bad. It's just constantly trying to convince us of these things. If you need a good illustration of that, get 100 people in any room and ask them this question. How many of you are above average drivers? What does everybody in the room do? Everybody in the room raises their hand, right? We, we, we have such a hard time seeing ourselves at the bottom half, right? There's this inner voice in us all saying, You may not be the best, but you're you're definitely not the worst. I mean, look at that idiot over there. You're definitely better than them, right? That's that's the voice of the flesh in us. This is how that voice works in our soul. And this is where the connection between beatitude number one and beatitude number two play themselves out. Those who are middle class in spirit cannot mourn their sin because they just don't see it as that bad. Those who are middle class in spirit cannot mourn their sin because they just don't think it's that bad. I still think they're above average. Not the best, but definitely not the worst. It's only those who are poor in spirit that can see their sin, face their sin, and grieve over it, mourn over it. When I think back to college, uh, one of God's great graces to me was the group of friends that I had. I had six or seven friends throughout those college years that all loved Jesus and were pursuing Jesus. I just, God, thank God for them. And one of those was a, a guy named Jay Bratton. I wish you could get to know Jay. He's just a precious person. And uh, we were all in our you know, low 20s and we were all struggling through sexual purity. And we were trying to fight against impurity and trying to fight for purity in our life. And and it's always, it's, it's interesting for me to look back and just see how sloppy that fight was, how little mourning and pleading and grieving there was in that fight for purity. Until one day, Jesus took Jay Bratton down into Matthew 5, 4. And I got to see Jay mourn his impurity, mourn his lust. And it was that moment that God showed me like, where, where, just, he just asked the question, where where is that sort of mourning in your life? Where is that sort of sorrow for sin in your life? Be be careful of that self-justification. It's really not that bad. Watching Jay mourn was the moment where, where God helped expose that middle class in spirit, can't mourn your sinness that was in me. It was that moment when God began to convince me, it really is that bad. And when I think about Jay, it was such a gift to us in that moment. And I want to just take a moment to just encourage parents in the room. One of the greatest gifts you can give your children. Is, is to allow them to see you mourn, like poor in spirit mourn your sin. It's one of the greatest gifts you can, they're, they're gonna learn more in that moment of watching you than in just about anything else that you could show them. So, so beware of that tendency towards self-justification. It's one of the reasons that we don't mourn our sin. And we also need to be aware of how we think about sin. This is another reason that we don't mourn our sin. Speaking of driving, I have a confession to make. I have the hardest time stopping at stop signs. <laughs> Does any, is anyone else with me on that? I just, I can't do it. It's so hard. I, I really believe stop signs, just change the name, it should be slow signs. Amen. Thank you. That, that's what they should be. And, and it's interesting because I don't, I don't have a lot of mourning in me when I think about pausing at a stop sign. Not stopping, but pausing. And one of the reasons I don't have a lot of mourning in me when I think about that is because it feels like a victimless crime. It feels like I'm just breaking kind of an an impersonal law that someone at some time just kind of randomly created. That's what it feels like to me. Now, I think that's oftentimes how we think about sin in our life. It's just sort of this impersonal breaking of some random rule that some random person somewhere created. But that's not the way the Bible presents sin and thinks about sin. Um, There are all sorts of crazy stories in the Bible. One of my favorite crazy story in the Bible is of our man, Elijah. Elijah was a bald man. Many of us can appreciate that. I'm on my way to Elijah. Um, And one day he was walking down a road and some teenage boys began making fun of his baldness and Elijah cursed those kids, and two she-bears, according to the Bible, came out of the woods and mauled those kids to death. That's a crazy story. Moral of the story, do not make fun of bald people, right? (laughs) But there's even crazier stories in the Bible, and an even crazier story is the story of Hosea. Many of you may know that story in the scriptures. God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. But, But here's the catch, Hosea. She is currently prostituting herself. But Hosea, I want you to go and marry her. I want you to romance her. I want you to woo her. I want you to make a covenant with her to love her for the rest of your days. And Hosea did it. He went and paid the price, bought her out of prostitution, made a covenant with her, married her and loved her. And it was soon thereafter that she broke covenant and went back into prostitution. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. Is there anything, just put yourself into the shoes of Hosea. Is there anything impersonal about that moment? No. If you put yourself into the shoes of Hosea, you are heart sick. You are in anguish. You are grieving in that moment because sin is not an impersonal thing. It is deeply personal. Now here's the whole punchline to the story of Hosea. The the story of Hosea and Gomer is not in the Bible for us to see Hosea and Gomer. The the point of the story is for God to be able to say, I am Hosea and you are Gomer. And this is what your sin does to me. It, It grieves me, it breaks my heart. Sin in the Bible is not a breaking of impersonal laws. It's breaking the heart of our husband, of God himself. This is why Paul says you can grieve the spirit. Like like our wounds inflict, our sin inflicts a wound upon the heart of God. And, And I'm just praying this morning that God would give us the ability to grieve what grieves the heart of God. Years ago, I read David Brainerd's journal he was a missionary to Native Americans. He died in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards took his journal, published it, and it became a Christian classic. On October 18th, 1740, this was his journal entry. In my morning devotions, he just opened up the Bible, reading read the Bible. My soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. I just wonder when the last time we had that moment with the Lord is where we have wept over our sin like that. Now here's the next word we need to insert into this idea of mourning. It's not just a brokenheartedness over my sin. It's a brokenheartedness over our sin, like our communal corporate sin. And I feel like this idea has been completely lost in our day. It is so much easier to condemn the sins of others than it is to weep over the sins of others. And and sometimes I wonder if God's not looking at the church and just asking the question, where are the Jeremiah's today? Do you know what Jeremiah was known for? He's a prophet of God. you know what he was known for? He was known for his tears. He was called the weeping prophet. In Jeremiah 9, he essentially prays to God, oh, that my, my head would be a fountain so that I would have enough tears to weep over the people of Israel's sin. In Jeremiah 13, he says this, but but if you people of Israel will not listen, if you will not stop your rejection of the Lord, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Where are the the Ezra's of today? In Ezra, Ezra 9, Ezra becomes aware of the sin of God's people. And when he hears it, he tears his garments, he pulls out his hair, and he sits down in a pool of his own tears, and he prays to God. And this is what he says. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities, for, for ours. He, he wasn't the one doing the sinning in this moment, but, but he personalized that he's weeping over their collective communal sin. For our iniquities has risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Where are the Ezra's? You see this in Jesus in Matthew chapter twenty-three. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem, and just in a pool of his own tears, he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Are you not? And you were not willing." Where are those sort of tears? When is the last time you have looked at the hardness of those around you, the lostness of those around you, that that marriage that is sinking around you, and mourned that before the Lord? There is a part of me, and I'm talking to myself here, that I just I'm I'm so tired of listening to myself talk about a want of revival. I want to see neighbors and friends rescued by Jesus. I want to see that marriage redeemed and that marriage redeemed. I want to see that prodigal return home. I, I, there's just a part that's so sick of hearing me say that without tears. And I think God is just looking at us through this text and asking, where are the Jeremiah's, the, the Ezra's? Where are those willing to weep over the communal sin of these people? But where are they? And oh, that God would make us that. And we'll finish here. Why is mourning needed? Why is it needed? Matthew 5, 4. Here's why. Because blessed, happy, flourishing are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I love what Thomas Watson says about that. Mourning would be a sad and unpleasant subject to address were it not that it has blessedness going before it and comfort coming after it. Isn't it amazing to see what is sandwiching our mourning? On one side, you have blessing. On the other side, you have comfort. And look at the the future tense of of that idea of, of you shall be comforted. That isn't implying that we should just think of our comfort coming in heaven one day out there. I don't think that's the sense that Jesus is trying to convey here. But by putting it in a future tense, he's just trying to establish the order. It's morning first and comfort second. Comfort always comes after the morning. Uh, William Tyndale, the old Bible translator, he used to say this about the gospel. The gospel is good news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and makes him dance and makes him leap for joy. And that's where the good news of grace is taking us. It's taking us into the place of leaping. It's into that sort of joy that the gospel of grace is taking us. But the trail leading to the place of leaping for joy first and always goes through the valley of suffering. The enjoyment of grace only follows grief over sin, it only follows grief. Maybe you could ask it this way. Do you want more of the enjoyment of God's grace? Do you want more? Who doesn't want more of that in here? We all do, right? And and Jesus is clarifying the pathway to that. He's saying, if you want more enjoyment of my grace, then first you have to mourn over your sin. I love what one early church father said about this. He said, David was the great mourner in Israel, but he was also the sweetest singer in Israel if we want to sing about the sweet grace of God, we first have to mourn over our sin. And Thomas Watson explains why that's so. When the heart is broken for sin, now it's fittest for joy. God pours the golden oil of comfort into broken vessels. Not not put together vessels, but broken mourning vessels. The mourner's heart is emptied of pride and God fills the empty with his blessing. Mourning for sin is preparatory in that way. It readies us to receive and enjoy the grace of God. Many of you remember the name Charles Coulson. uh, His nickname back in kind of the Nixon era, he worked with President Nixon, was that he was President Nixon's hatchet man. That was him. He ended up going to prison over his role in Watergate, just the scandal that was that error. And in the middle of that mess in his life, that that was the moment where he actually met Jesus. And I want to, to read you the moment when God took him down into the Valley of Mourning and brought him up into the place where we leap for joy at the grace of God. He says it this way. That night when I sat alone in my car, My own sin, not not just the dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep within me was thrust before my eyes, forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean and worst of all, I could not escape it. That is God taking a man down into the valley of mourning. And here he comes up and out of it. In that moment of clarity, I found myself driven irresistibly into the arms of the living God, where grace is found, where grace is enjoyed. And may that be our experience, Stonegate. Will you pray with me? give you a second to pray that the Lord would press into you the things that would be helpful wipe away the things that would be unhelpful this morning and just there where you are, this will be a wonderful time to pray for what the Puritans used to call the gift of tears the gift of tears and they're a gift They're a gift that God gives to His sons and daughters when they look at their sin, when they grieve the heart of God. When is the last time you've wept over sin? Your own sin? Our collective communal sin? Oh God, would you take us down into the valley of mourning? God, would you help us face ourselves? God would you help us? Would you help us have hearts that could grieve what we see? And God, I pray that that would then in turn make us the happiest Christians around. God, when we receive the comfort of your grace, God, help us enjoy it. I mean, this is the paradox, God, help us live in it. That the lower we go in our mourning, the happier we are going to be in Jesus. Help us embrace that. Help Help us move into that, oh God. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.